And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. <clears throat> Today's December the 14th, 348th day of the year. 17 days remain till the year's over with. And it's a year that a lot of folks will be glad to see in the rearview mirror. What with COVID and all the other um, pandemic-related uh, issues. You know, there have been a number of uh, major issues associated with the pandemic, not the least of which is the interruption of the education for so many young folks. Uh, it's interesting to, to think that... Uh, in those days, uh, when I was that age, I would have loved to have um, not had school. But now I look back at uh, what's going on right now and wonder why nobody's in school. Well, we've been talking about uh, ghosts and hauntings, and you know, I'm going to be uh, putting a lot more of my books up on um, Amazon. Um, and Kendall, the uh, when all is said and done, and everything is edited and what have you, I probably have a hundred books I've written, and I've done events um, all over the Southwest, and been very well received. But unfortunately, because of my misspent youth, I wanted to to uh, be an army officer. I have a lot of. Uh, Injuries that are now making themselves well known, not the least of which is a uh, uh, traumatic brain injury that was ignored because, well, gee, we don't see any bone or blood, so there's nothing wrong. So I've turned my attention to, to writing books and doing TV shows. I did a uh, book called Beyond Roswell, which was crashes that uh, nobody talks about. And we did a uh, TV series that I'm told is going to uh, be aired sometime in the near future, hopefully within my lifetime. And now I'm getting ready to do some more. Well, we were talking about haunted um, hotels, which is one of the books I've done. And it's a Coral, New Mexico. There's a hotel built in 1915 called the Valverde Hotel. Uh, it's actually owned by a friend of mine. Now, the Valverde is not as large as other hotels in New Mexico, but from the standpoint of beauty and convenience, it's without a peer. It contains 60 guest rooms, a commodious dining room, a kitchen, a spacious lobby, and even writing rooms. With the exception of a few grander suites, the rooms share two common bathrooms located on the second floor. And each room is equipped with its own shower. Now, in present times, the, the rooms are rented out as apartments, with two of the old rooms composing uh, one apartment. Kitchen and dining room are converted into a restaurant, where the old lobby is now a bar. And inside the building, one staircase leads to the upper floor, and the um, and its doors 
locked, so access to the second floor is by two fire escapes located at the rear of the building. There are also the stairs that the tenants use for access to their apartments. Now, a good deal of activity takes place, ghostly activity that is, in and on the stairs leading to the second floor. Randomly flashing lights and small orbs can be seen whisking about if you have an infrared camera. Activity only seems to take place when a live band is playing, and even then only if it's earth-based music with such instruments as violins and harmonicas. Maybe sound vibrations somehow summon the spirits from where they normally reside. Others have said the spirit of an unidentified woman has also been seen on the stairs and the landing. Efforts have been made to identify this unknown figure, but to date nobody's been able to give her a name or even any facts related to her demise. During its long history, a total of ten people have died in various locations around the hotel. Five of these deaths were thought to be suicides. And if things get so bad that we take that way out, then uh, it certainly leaves an impression, so to speak. Now, close to the Valverde is Fort Craig, one of a number of military posts built prior to the Civil War to protect the settlers from marauding Indians. It came to prominence during the abortive uh, Confederate invasion into Mexico. When the 11 states succeeded from the Union in 1861 and formed the Confederacy, uh, it was desperately short of raw materials for war production. And uh, those... Uh, Materials had to be imported from abroad and often paid for in gold. So gold and seaports were very important to the South. Now, the Confederacy was very much aware that California and the western part of North America held both seaports and gold, and the South wanted them. So a plan was devised to allow the Confederacy to both achieve uh, the means to purchase raw material and also to cut the government of the U.S. off from its uh, western territories. So in the summer of 1861, 2nd Texas Regiment Mounted Rifles, led by Lieutenant Colonel John Baylor, seized control of the Mesilla Valley, which is near present-day Las Cruces, and declared the Mexico Confederate Territory. In the winter of 1861, a Confederate brigade invaded New Mexico with the hope of fulfilling the South's ambitions in the West. The brigade was commanded by General Henry Sibley, formerly of the U.S. Army comprised of three regiments of cavalry, the 4th, 5th, and 7th Texas Mounted Volunteers, and independent battery of artillery, totaled almost 3,000 men, had at least 18 cannons. Now, opposing the Sibley Brigade were a few companies of the 5th and 7th U.S. Infantry, a few companies of the 2nd Cavalry, and a battalion of the 3rd Cavalry, a few batteries of artillery, one company of Colorado Volunteers, several regiments of New Mexico volunteers, and some untrained militia. The overall command of the U.S. forces in New Mexico was Colonel Edward Canby. Now, the first battle of the campaign was south of Socorro, near Fort Craig at Valverde Ford. Texans drove the federal forces from the field and captured a battery of cannons in the savage encounter that was the uh, only documented use of lancers in the war between the states. Canby retreated to Fort Craig and simply couldn't get him to come out. 
Texans lost many supply wagons to a surprise cavalry charge by the New Mexico volunteers and short on supplies. As a result, Sibley chose to bypass Fort Craig and continue north to Albuquerque. On March 2, 1862, Albuquerque was conquered, or excuse me, occupied by uh, the Confederacy, and on March 7th, Santa Fe was occupied. Confederates are critically short of food and other supplies needed to federal stores at Fort Union on the Santa Fe Trail north of Las Vegas, New Mexico. And at Fort Union was about 1,300 federal troops, including several companies of regulars and New Mexico volunteers, but mainly the newly organized 1st Colorado Volunteers, known as the Pikes Peakers. 1st Colorado arrived at Fort Union after Herculean effort, including a march through a blizzard. The fort and its troops were commanded by Colonel John Slaw, and Slaw's orders from Canby were to protect Fort Union at all costs. But he also said, don't start a major battle. Slaw thought the best place from which to defend Fort Union was at the on the road to Santa Fe, so he started down the road toward Glorietta Pass. On March 26th, the force of about 400 Confederates under the commander Major uh, Charles Pyron was scouting the western end of Glorietta Pass, which is called Apache Canyon. They came around a bend and ran into Slaw's advance party of about 415 men under the commander Major Chivington. Chivington immediately attacked and drove the Confederates down the canyon in a wild running fight and actually captured dozens of Texans. Now, fearing that the entire Confederate brigade was nearby, he stopped his men and withdrew to Kozlowski's ranch near Pecos, New Mexico. Major Pyron fell back to wood and water, two critical items uh, in New Mexico during the early spring, and sent for help. His courier found Lieutenant Colonel William Scurry at Galestel just uh, going into camp with two battalions of the brigade. In minutes, Scurry had his men on the road to Apache Canyon. It was an all-night march through bitter cold, brought him to Pyron's position about dawn. Texans prepared for a federal assault and waited throughout the 27th. Kozlowski, Slaw, and Chivington decided that the Slaw would take the second and third of the, uh, two-thirds of the uh, troops, including all the artillery, down the pass toward Santa Fe. Chippington would take his battalion of 113, guided by Lieutenant Colonel J. Francisco Chavez and the New Mexico Volunteers over the shoulder of Glorieta Mesa and attacked the Confederate flank. So on the morning of the 28th, the Union plan was put into effect. Scurry decided not to wait at Apache Canyon. He started almost all his force, including Pyron's men, uh, eastward through the pass. Left his supply wagons with a small guard at Johnson's Ranch at the junction of Glorieta Pass and Apache Canyon. About mid-morning, he hit Slaw's lead elements near Pigeon's Ranch, located on the Santa Fe Trail. Scurry deployed his men in a long line and set his artillery up on a low hill. Slaw did the same, though his line was shorter than Scurry, since Scurry's force had over 300 men more than Slaw did. Scurry's battalions attacked with great vigor, but were met with equal vigor by the Conf- uh, Coloradans. Slaw's uh, pa- position wasn't strong, but the attack was stopped long enough to give his men time to fall back to a better one. Slaw tried to send men to his right around Scurry's flank, but a detachment of Texans met his men head-on and stopped them. Scurry kept pressure on Slaw's line while organizing his own force in a three-pronged assault. Late in the afternoon, the Confederates attacked Slaw's entire front, driving in the flanks and threatening the center. The outnumbered Federal infantry held the Texans at bay long enough for the artillery to pull back to a third line. 
Scurry's men pursued but were exhausted from the six-hour battle. Slaw soon abandoned the line, leaving the Confederates in undisputed possession of the field. But while all this was going on at Pigeon's Ranch, Shivington had completely missed Scurry's flank, falling instead on the Confederate supply train parked at Apache Canyon. The lightly guarded wagons were captured and destroyed, leaving Scurry with no ammunition, food, blankets, or other supplies that he desperately needed. Shivington returned to Kozolowski's, and Slaw's remaining uh, reunited command continued its withdrawal toward Fort Union. Unable to sustain his men in the field, Scurry was forced to go back to Santa Fe, where Sibley joined him. Canby left Fort Craig early on in April and had come north, threatening Albuquerque and drawing Sibley's entire force back from Santa Fe. Canby and Slaw united their forces east of the Sandia Mountains and now outnumbered the Texans. So Sibley, faced with superior numbers, even more destitute than before, knew that uh, stay and fight would mean his brigade would be destroyed. He decided to retreat from New Mexico. Confederacy would never again threaten the far west. But while all this has been going on, and the Glorietta Pass battle has, of course, dominated the pages of history in this area, everyone has overlooked what happened to those that died during the campaign. Now, I've been to a number of old military posts and researched from my books and and each I felt a sense of purpose as if something about those who once served this country still remained. So does it seem that those who uh, garrisoned Fort Craig and tried to stop the depredations of both marauding Indians as well as the Confederate forces still stand ready to defend their country in the walls of Fort Craig? Well, some, those who have, uh, some who have visited Fort Craig late in the evening report as they approach, they see figures that appear to be blue-clad sentries manning the walls. But when they get to the site, there's no one to be seen. One individual reported he was there about dusk, and he was absolutely sure he heard this faint sound of taps floating in the breeze. Figures and glowing orbs have been sighted around the commander's quarters and along officers' row. And I'm told that one group set up a tape recorder and recorded the sounds of a voice counting cadence as the rhythmic sounds of men marching could be heard in the background. There's also the sound of bits jangling and the leather creaking. Just as I found at Fort Bliss, Texas, apparently there are those who will not leave their post until the great commander properly relieves them of their duty. But, excuse me, a number of reports that gunshots have been heard and several been very adamant that the gunshots came from muskets. Others have reported hearing what sounds like cannon fire. Also, that reports that some witnesses have smelled the distinctive aroma of black powder. When somebody fires a black powder pistol or rifle, there is a distinctive smell that's unmistakable. And many who've experienced it uh, are adamant that when they've been there in the evening, that's what they smell. Well, from New Mexico, let's turn to Nevada. Austin, Nevada, to be specific. You know, sometimes unusual incidents are the reason good things happen, such is the case with the little town of Austin, Nevada. Silver deposits gave birth to the town were actually discovered in 1862 by a horse belonging to a man by the name of W.H. Talbert. The horse, by accident, kicked up a piece of quartz containing gold and silver. Talbert sent the piece to Virginia City for assay, staked out a claim, and when word got out, others followed and the silver rush was on. By 1880, 
Your minds began to show signs of exhaustion in its total of 50 million in ore production. And $1880, I might add, was history. Once difficult to reach, Austin's now immediately accessible on Highway 50. One of the early Nevada mining towns has remained comparatively unspoiled in spite of the encroachment of civilization. In addition to the history can be glimpsed along uh, the streets of the, this remnant of the past, there are also ghosts that are said to haunt some of the old buildings. One of the buildings that has garnered quite a reputation is the old International Hotel. And the history of this building is certainly interesting. I've been told that the, the building that became the hotel was originally erected in Virginia City before being moved to Austin in 1862. In fact, this building is said to be the oldest in the state of Nevada. Many concerts and large balls were held uh, upstairs in the Grand Ballroom. Uh, Emma Nevada, world-famous European opera singer, made her debut appearance here to a sold-out audience. Today, this historical landmark is known as International Cafe and Bar, and it's said to still serve outstanding food. In addition to the food and the spirits it serves by day, said to be a number of spirits that haunt the old hotel by night. Now, the primary ghost in this hotel is called Tommy, and it's believed to be the spirit of a former owner or maybe an employee. Tommy said to often be seen, or his presence felt at the end of the bar and could be heard stomping around upstairs in the old hotel. A number of folks um, have gone looking for Tommy. Not much success uh, has been reported. Then we got the Boulder City Hotel. Now, there are a few individuals who seem able to see into the future. And one of these was a man by the name of Jim Webb. Well, word began to circulate about the huge project being undertaken. He had a vision of what Boulder City needed. A grand dame hotel with unprecedented private baths, air conditioning, a gumwood paneled lobby where would accommodate world dignitaries visiting Boulder Dam. Wilms' vision became a reality, and during the 1930s, the Boulder Dam Hotel was a huge draw for people visiting Boulder Dam. And as we've gone to Las Vegas uh, numerous times, we've passed it. I haven't uh, spent much time exploring it, but it certainly has a presence. And a number of movie stars made use of it when they needed to establish uh, Nevada residency so they could obtain quickie divorces. This building is truly one of the most elegant modern hotels in the western United States at the time it opened, and the gala grand opening was unlike any extravaganza attended by the elite society. Some of the famous guests during 1934 included A.P. Giannini, founder of Bank of America, Betty Davis, who stayed at the hotel while on vacation following the filming of A Human Bondage, and the cast and crew of RKO Films, who stayed while they produced the movie Silver Streak. During 1935, a few more of the famous guests staying in the hotel included honeymooners Mr. and Ms. Cornelius Vanderbilt, Jr., Will Rogers, who was performing on stage at the Boulder Theater, the Maharaj and Maharani of Indore, India, and Cardinal Pascali, later became Pope Pius XII. Throughout the remainder of the 1930s, other famous guests who needed a trip to the Great Dam on their uh, travels included the Duchess of Westminster, George Pepperdine, founder of Pepperdine University, Henry Fonda, Boris Karloff, Senator Robert Taft, Shirley Temple, and Howard Hughes, who recuperated the hotel after wrecking his airplane on Lake Mead. 
What was interesting is that some of these guests apparently never checked out. There have been many reports of apparitions of some very recognizable people being seen about the hotel. Well, you know, many places where there have been a large amount of activity seem to retain the imprint of those who spent a great deal of time there. Certainly a brothel would qualify as a place where folks spent a great deal of time. In Carson City, Nevada, there's a brothel known as the Beehive Whorehouse, which is known to be haunted by those who have gone before. Ghost of a tall, bloated woman with straggly red hair and dressed in a dirty white nightgown had been seen on the streets near the whorehouse where she once lived and plied her trade. Her name was actually Timber Kate, and she was part of a notorious saloon act with her female lover, Bella Rawhide. According to the story, the two performed live sex acts in honky-tonks in Carson City, Spokane, Butte, and Cheyenne. But the young Bella fell in love with a half-breed ruffian by the name of Tug Daniels. After Bella and Tug ran away together, Timber Kate resorted to dressing as a man in white tights and lifting weights on stage, though she usually ended up doing a somewhat bizarre striptease. 1880, Bella and Tug met up with Kate in Carson City. In the ensuing showdown, Tug pulled a knife and cut open Kate's belly from her crotch to her navel. This wretched woman died in excruciating pain on the whorehouse floor. Tug escaped was never seen again. 1882, Bella committed suicide by drinking cleaning fluid. Sighted the old Beehive Whorehouse is on North Quincy Street, but Timber Kate's ghost has been seen on many of the streets nearby. Something has become the center of your world quite often remains that even after you pass on to whatever's on the other side. What's now known as the Armagosa Opera House and Hotel began life as a community center known as Cork Hill Hall. And Cork Hill Hall has been converted into a hotel that contained a theater now uh, named the Armagosa Hotel. 1967 is pretty much deserted until a dancer from New York named Marta Beckett came upon it en route to an engagement. She was smitten by the possibilities that it ruined theater. Built the year she was born, as a matter of fact. On a shoestring, she first leased and then bought the complex. Benefactors helped. The Armagosa is now owned by a nonprofit organization, but it was she who provi- uh, provided the energy to restore this historic old theater and hotel. Her personality permeates everything. It makes a visit there a special experience. Along with a hotel and theater, Marta also seems to have purchased several ghosts, at least according to a number of psychics and the local tales. Among the tales of ghosts and hauntings are uh, one involves an unused area of the hotel, which was actually a mine shaft where employees of the Pacific Coast Borax Company lived. <coughs> Excuse me. It was said they only been a murder or a suicide took place there. In room 34, it's reported a little girl named Mary was murdered. Entered the room, it's possible to see a tall figure by the window with what was said to be the, that was said to be the killer. Guests who've merely walked past the door to room 34 also reported encountering a strange feeling. The theater itself is also said to be haunted. Most people upon entering the theater report feeling a very unusual sensation said to be linked to the ghost.
Actually, there are many, many stories about ghosts at this historical hotel. Current owner seems content to allow the ghost to stay. But many have come to visit just to see if they can encounter the ghost, so it's good for business. Even Chris Angel did a show segment from the old hotel that aired October 31st, 2006. Well, let's talk about the Goldfield Hotel. It's closed off and abandoned. No access to the public. You walk around the front along the sidewalks, look in the windows, but it's... And it has been partially remodeled over the years into a failed casino conversion project. Maybe someday an investor with enough funds will follow through and restore it properly. But so much major work has already been done to alter it for other projects. It would be difficult to restore it the way it originally was. Built on top of an abandoned gold mine, this 154-room hotel was opened in 1908. It's considered home to several ghosts in the downstairs employees area. Room 109 is a small room with a single bed. It's haunted by the presence of a pregnant woman. Psychics have seen her ghost uh, chained to a radiator there. Rumors say a pregnant prostitute named Elizabeth was chained in the room by George Winfield, the original owner of the hotel. After she gave birth, she was left to die in the room and babies thrown down the old mine shaft at the northern end of the basement. Elizabeth Ghost even turned up on a photograph taken in the room by a reporter from Las Vegas. On the first floor, the George Renfield room itself is said to be haunted by his ghost. Untraceable cigar smoke and fresh ashes have been found there. His presence has also been detected near the lobby staircase, where the ghost of a midget and two small children have also been seen. Then we have the gold room, which is haunted by a ghost that stabs people. High psychic energy has also been detected in the Theodore Roosevelt room and a southwest room on the third floor. Some psychics say the Goldfield Hotel is one of only seven portals to the other side that exist in the modern world. It'd be interesting to go down to the mine shaft. Then we have Gold Hill Hotel. Built in 1859 is the Raisin House. The Gold Hill Hotel is the oldest operating hotel and saloon in the state of Nevada. Located just outside of Virginia City, visitors arriving in Virginia City from either Lake Tahoe or Reno pass by this small town en route to Virginia City. It's also a stop on a 35-minute train tour of the Virginia and Truckee Railroad Tour. H.M. Vesey acquired the hotel earlier in the 1860s and added the wooden structure to the original stone building. The hotel became an important part of the now thriving Metropolis, <laughs> metropolis of Gold Hill, which was adjacent to the even larger industrial and business center known as Bridger. First, there's William, a firefighter who died in the Yellow Jacket Fire. Guests at the hotel have been known to smell this pipe tobacco. Particularly hangs out in room number five and is repeatedly waking guests at three o'clock in the morning by shaking the bed. Also, the ghost of Rosie. Rosie's believed to be a previous housekeeper enjoys moving guest keys around. You can know when Rosie's present by the smell of old-fashioned rose petals, which apparently was the perfume uh, scent that she liked. 
Well, then we have the Aladdin Hotel and Casino. Known as the Aladdin for much of its life, it was the first major casino to open on the Las Vegas Strip in the 1960s. But throughout its history, it's been known by a number of names and had a number of owners. And there are many who claim this hotel has always had a cloud hanging over it, as well as its owners. Originally opened in 1963 is the Tally Ho. Late 1964 became known as the King's Crown, but this business failed in six months when it wasn't able to get a gaming license. 1966, the new and improved Aladdin Hotel and Casino was opened with a very upscale Arabian Nights theme. And there's a number of interesting stories told about the Aladdin Hotel. Many guests complained during the night they'd hear the sound of a key being inserted in the door lock and whispering coming from the hallway. Of course, like most hotels in Vegas, the room doors use electronic cards, not keys, and the old-fashioned locks haven't been used in years. Many of these stories of haunting seem to revolve around the Panorama Suite on the seventh floor. According to many visitors staying in the Panorama Suite, have also heard strange whisperings and the sound of a key being inserted in the door lock. Panorama Suite also had the Aladdin... Uh, Door buzzer, which uh, rings at the uh, oddest hours. Though they have since, uh, long since been deactivated. When the door is answered, of course, there's nobody there. And items have also been known to vanish from the suite and reappear in other places. Certainly it gives you something to uh, consider when you check into a place like the Aladdin. Then we got the MGM Grand Hotel and Casino and Bally's Hotel and Casino. The original MGM Grand Hotel and Casino began life as the Marina Hotel. The Marina, located at 3805 Las Vegas Boulevard, opened in 1975 as a 714-room hotel and casino. 1989, Kirk Kikorian bought the Marina Hotel and the Tropicana Country Club to obtained the site that would become the home of the MGM Grand, the largest hotel in the world. At the time of the fire, the MGM Grand had 2,100 rooms, and about 91% of those rooms were occupied on that particular day. Over 5,000 people were in the hotel and casino at the time of the fire. In addition to the hotel and the casino located on the property, there were five restaurants and a shopping mall. So the fact that there were only 5,000 people on the property was a minor miracle in and of itself. Of course, there were a number of unexpected occupants in the hotel. A number of thieves took advantage of the confusion and came into the hotel on a robbery run. An undetermined number of them died in the fire. And compounding the problems with the smoke and the flames was the fact that the hotel casino had been designed by some of the best decorators in Hollywood. As a result, a lot of plastic had been used plastic, which released toxic fumes when it caught on fire. As a result, guests and staff who were nowhere near the scene of the fire died as a result of the toxic gas filtering through the air system. A number of gamblers are so intent on the, in, uh, what they were doing at the MGM Grand. During that time, uh, they refused to leave their slot machines. A lot of them died with their hands still on the handle. Well, ground was broken October 7th, 1991 for the new casino hotel complex. The marina closed November 30th, 1991. 
Marina Hotel building still exists as the western end of the main hotel building. The modern Bally's Hotel Casino is built on the location that used to be the MGM Grand that gained international recognition as a result of that terrible fire that killed a number of staff and guests. On the corner of the Flamingo and Las Vegas Boulevard, where Bally's now stands, MGN once had a glamorous hotel in the casino. It was the gem in its crown, so to speak. It was a, the fire was a horrific, tragic event. Some guests jumping to their deaths when rescue ladders couldn't reach their upper floor windows. Over 500 people were injured, and a total of 84 people died that day. And two more over the next few months, making it the second largest hotel fire in terms of lives lost in United States history. Eventually, a new hotel casino was erected at the site of this devastating tragedy. And though Bally's is owned and operated by a different company, but built on the footprint of the MGM Grand, none of the original MGM Grand exists. The spirits of the people who died so tragically in 1980 are said to still linger at the location where they died. They don't seem to care that it's no longer the MGM. If you try a tour of Bally's Hotel Quarters at night, you may run into ghostly guests who never quite checked out. And as you might guess, it's believed many of the ghosts of the of those that walked the halls of MGM Bally stem from that tragic fire. The heat and fire were so intense that the front doors of the hotel were blown completely off their hinges, and the cars parked outside the entrance were completely destroyed. According to newspaper reports, there was a cloud of smoke that rose over a mile into the sky. The crystal chandeliers and ceiling panels in the casino all crashed to the floor as a wall of flame swept through the, the first floor area. Later investigations showed the fire began with a spark caused by an electrical ground fault in the wiring that sent power to a compressor located in a pie display case in the, the deli, one of the small restaurants at the MGM Grand. The initial fire caused smoke to spread rapidly through the building air conditioning system. And the ghosts in the MGM Grand slowly began to make themselves known over the next eight months to the Bally's, as the new Bally's took shape. Everything was new. The old just wouldn't go away. Said to be like the old hotel superimposed over the new, and it had to slow to some startling happenings. According to a number of witnesses, there have been quite a number of incidents involving guests and staff at Bally's seeing entities from the disaster at the MGM Grand. Desk clerks have had a number of calls from guests about strange sights in their rooms. Then we have the Dunes Hotel and the Casino. Opened May 23, 1955, as a low-rise resort with Hollywood star Vera Ellen providing entertainment in a magic carpet review. Villa Aaron was uh, Ellen. It was a beautiful young dancer. When the North Tower was added in 1961, it was one of the finest and largest hotels on the Strip. 1979, the South Tower was added. Built in part with financing from movie mogul Al Gottsman and the Teamsters Pension Fund. Resort boasted an 18-hole golf course, a rooftop health spot, and a 90-foot long pool. The hotel's slogan was the miracle in the desert. In the early years, the dunes was known for the 35-foot tall fiberglass sultan that stood above its main entrance. Many top performers such as Dean Martin, Liberace, George Burns, Pat Cooper, Judy Garland, Phyllis Dillon, Frank Sinatra performed at the hotel. 
and Hollywood opened a much fanfare at struggle from the start. One reason was its location of what was then the southernmost part of the Strip. The hotel frequently had to borrow money and even the Sands Hotel and its executives to try to help out. It was bringing in numerous famous celebrities and entertainers such as Frank Sinatra's surprise appearance dressed as a sultan. January 10, 1957, in a desperate move to keep the resort afloat, the Dunes became the first hotel casino in Nevada to offer a topless show called Minsky's Follies, the first of which was known as Minsky's Goes to Paris. State legislature went into an uproar, but the show set a record for attendance in a single week at 16,000. 1961, a 24-story tower was built, bringing a number of rooms up to 450. 1970, there were unrealized rumors Howard Hughes would buy into the hotel. 1979, the hotel expanded to 1,300 rooms. The Sultan's statue, which by now had found itself relegated to the golf course, caught fire in 1985, reportedly due to an electrical short in its stomach. 1987, Japanese investor Maseo Nangaku purchased the dunes for $155 million. But no matter what he did, he couldn't make it a financial success. November 17, 1992, the dunes was sold for the last time to developer Steve Wynn's company, Mirage Resorts, Inc., for $75 million. January 26, 1993, the dunes closed its doors for the last time. The once the finest and most grand hotel on the Strip, like many of the legendary properties of its era, could no longer compete with the newer and more exciting mega-resorts that were being built. By the time the hotel was closed, guests routinely reported feeling cold spots in a number of locations throughout the hotel, especially in that main tower in the casino. Also, a number of stories about the lounge on the top floor of the dunes. A number of guests and workers reported blue, gold, blue glows being seen in several areas and sounds of voices coming from empty rooms. It's also the story of the young Kino runner who was in the wrong place at the wrong time. From all reports, she was very pretty, young, with a bubbly personality. Everyone liked her and I'm sure she was destined for bigger and better things. But sometimes things just don't work out like we planned. She walked into a convenience store robbery and was killed. Friends and co-workers mourned, but Vegas being Vegas, pretty soon it was business as usual. And then the sightings began. She was seen in the casino restaurant at the Kino desk and often just seen moving about the hotel. Well, in 1993, the dunes was imploded, and in its place, Los de Bellagio, one of the most eye-catching hotel casinos in Las Vegas. But in spite of its ultra-modern facade, even the Bellagio has a ghost that it's all its own. July of 1994, actor Justin Pierce was staying at the hotel. Newly married, a new father, a rising star. He was in Las Vegas to do a photo shoot, and by all reports, was in good spirits. But one morning, he was found hanging in his room in apparent suicide. Whatever may be the cause of his or reason for his death, Justin Pierce has been seen walking the halls of the Bellagio, maybe searching for the peace and death he didn't find in life. Then one of my favorite locations is the Caesars Palace Hotel Casino. 1962, Jay Sarno, a cabana motel owner, used $35 million had been lent to him by the Teamsters Central States Pension Fund to Began plans for a hotel on land owned by Kirk Kukorian. Sarno later acted as designer of the hotel he planned to construct. Building on the 13th 
uh, excuse me, 14-story Caesars Palace Hotel began in 1962. That first tower would have 680 rooms on a 34-acre site. Masarno struggled to decide on a name for the hotel. Finally decided to call it Caesars Palace because he thought that the name Caesar would evoke thoughts of royalty because of Roman General Julius Caesar. And he felt the name would attract a more seductive crowd of women to attract more men in the gambling portion of the casino. Masarno felt the guests could should feel they were at King's home while at his hotel. It's called Caesars, not Caesars, because every guest is a Caesar. He contracted uh, many companies to build the hotel, from the Roman landscapes it presents to the water fountain that had been stages for various events in the hotel swimming pools. Finally, August 5, 1966, the hotel was inaugurated. While there haven't been any widespread stories of hauntings at Caesars, there have been a few that are normally told among the staff. Seems if you go down to the bathrooms in the Forum Casino, the sensor-controlled water faucets will turn off and on and on of volition. These are not malfunctions. Seems to be intelligently controlled. But by who or what, no one seems to know. Then another one I found amusing in Vegas is Circus Circus. Opened October 18, 1968 by Jay Sarno. Became the flagship casino for Circus Circus Enterprises. At its opening, the $15 million facility only included a casino. Architects Rissman and Rissman Associates designed a giant circus tent-shaped main structure which was built by R.C. Johnson Construction of Las Vegas. Well, in 1974, ownership changed with the sale of the casino to William Bennett. So was expanded with hotel and tower additions in 72 and 80 and 85 and 86 and 96 with additional tower renovations to follow. Hotel's West Tower rooms are renovated to look similar to Excalibur's widescreen rooms. But there's a dark side to this gigantic amusement facility. Hotel guests reported hearing terrifying screams for help coming from the bathrooms and their hotel rooms would certainly uh, ruin their sleep for the rest of that night. And there have been many cries for help heard coming from the poker room. But no matter how diligently staff and guests have searched, no source for these screams can ever be found. And there's another story that years ago, three people were murdered in one of the hotel kitchens, and their ghosts still roamed the hotel casino looking for the killers. Another sad story comes from room 123, where a young mother in a fit of depression killed her young child and turned the gun on herself. Now those two spirits are seen roaming the hotel looking for the child's father. Sometimes when the woman realizes someone can see her, she'll ask him for help, and when anyone can do anything, she fades away. Circus Circus is the only hotel on the Strip to have an attached campground of America, where many RVers park their vehicles while they spend time in a casino. Many of these guests report they've returned to their vehicles to rest, that they, uh, and they hear strange sounds coming from outside their vehicles, and Something didn't shake the RV with enough force to rock the occupants. Of course, no one's ever seen anything wandering in the campground that would be big enough to do something like that. Now let's turn our attention to the Excalibur Hotel. Opened June 19, 1990, originally built by the Circus Circus Company. Featured a prominent large swimming pool. When it opened, it was the largest hotel in the world. March 21st. 2003, the largest megabucks jackpot as of that time was hit at the Excalibur. 
$713,982.25. On April 26, 2005, the Excalibur, along with the other hotels of the Mandalay Resort Group, are bought by MGM Resorts International. Since 2007, most of the medieval-themed statues and scenery have been removed. Garage sale and auction were held to sell those statues. To this day, few of the wall murals and statues still remain to be seen. And while there are no definitive ghosts that have been seen haunting the halls of the Excalibur, there have been a number of stories told by visitors and guests about uh, hearing whispering in their ear. Voices so low they can't understand the words, but they know something's being said. Many others report feeling that there's somebody following them, but when they turn around, there's no one there. Well, from the Excalibur, let's turn to the Flamingo. Back in the heyday of the Mafia, most gangsters, and many famous gangsters, literally flocked to Las Vegas. Benjamin Bugsy Siegel, in particular, saw the potential for this gambling mecca and persuaded his Mafia bosses to invest in the most luxurious hotel casino the area had ever seen. The cost to build the Flamingo ended up being more than three times the original estimate, and in spite of glamorous grand opening, the casino was actually a flop. Flamingo started to turn a nice profit just a few months later, but the crime syndicate never forgave Bugsy for embezzling its money to build it. While he was relaxing in Anita Hills, Beverly Hills home, on the evening of June 20, 1947, he was shot once in the head and four times in the body. Though much of the original flamingo he helped build is no longer in existence, his ghost is said to remain haunting the presidential suite where he resided while in the city. Sightings have also been reported by the pool and the wedding chapel and around the Bugsy Monument in the Flamingo's Rose Garden. A youthful dead Elvis is said to haunt the Flamingo Hilton. Also, any mafia enthusiast can tell you who Bugsy Siegel was. The man who took a dusty little isolated town named Las Vegas, Nevada, and turned it into a gambling metropolis was snuffed out for offending his betters. Opened in 1946, the Hotel Hemorrhage money that first year, which are said to be the direct result of, uh, of the direct cause of Bugsy's untimely demise. Well, sprinkled with Bugsy Siegel memorial plaques and artwork, the casino is still a place where Bugsy is said to visit on occasion. In the hotel I've stayed in a number of times is the Las Vegas Hilton. Both the land as well as the building at the Las Vegas Hilton have a most interesting history. The land the hotel sits on was occupied in the 1950s by the Las Vegas Park Speedway, a failed horse and automobile racing facility. Now, that venture had great potential, but there were a number of factors that worked against success. September 4, 1953, the track was opened under the name of the Las Vegas Jockey Club. Ticket booths and tote boards didn't work properly, and only there only being one entrance discouraged customers. Customers had to wait an hour in traffic to park, and some went home without even attending. 8,200 customers attended in the final day, and the board of the directors closed the track for two weeks after the third day to replace the ticket booths. track was rapidly losing money, so the board closed after operating 13 days. Opened back up in 1954 to host quarter horse racing, but closed after seven weeks. 
The hotel, which rose on this spot, was designed by architect Martin Stern. It was built in 1969 by Kirk Kikorian and opened as the International Hotel. When it opened, one of its claims to fame was it was the largest hotel in the world. Barbara Streisand was the opening night performer, along with Peggy Lee performing afterwards in the hotel's lounge. 1969, right after Streisand's engagement, Elvis Presley performed for 58 consecutive sold-out shows, breaking all Las Vegas attendance records. In one month, 130,157 paying and ostensibly gambling customers. And his performances had stellar reviews from both critics and the public. Then he broke his own attendance record in February 1970, again in August 1970. Then August 1972, when he played Las Vegas, he lived in the penthouse suite, room 3000, located on the 30th floor, until his last performance there in December 1976. He was due to perform there again in 1978 to celebrate the opening of the North Tower, but he died in August of 1977 when I was in South America. His manager, Colonel Parker, lived in the hotel on the fourth floor from the 70s to the mid-80s. But in spite of rumors to the contrary, it appears that Elvis did not leave the building. Now, Liberace headlined in the showroom during the 70s, drawing sold-out crowds twice a night. When he signed his contract at the Hilton in 1972, he earned 300000 per week, a record amount for an individual entertainer in Las Vegas. He's also said to roam the corridors of this historic hotel. I've been in both his home, the restaurant he had, and I've toured Elvis's uh, room. You get odd feelings. Las Vegas Hilton was the site in 1978 where Leon Spinks defeated Muhammad Ali for the World Heavyweight Championship. It's also the site in which Mike Tyson defeated Tony Tucker to unify and become the undisputed heavyweight champion in 1986. Also, Donald Curry defeated Milton McClory at the Las Vegas Hilton to unify and become the undisputed welterweight champion in December 1985. Well, in 1970, the International Hotel was sold to Hilton Hotels Corporation and renamed to Las Vegas Hilton in 1971. In 1998, Hilton Hotels Corporation split their properties and stock into two different companies, Hilton Gaming and Hilton Hotels. Shortly after the split, Hilton Gaming merged with Belly Entertainment Corporation. The company was renamed Park Place Entertainment. Well, the East Tower was added in 1975, and the North Tower was added in 1978. From the International Hotel, uh, the Las Vegas Hilton boasts the 30th floor Elvis Presley Suite, which is, of course, haunted by Elvis. He's normally seen sporting one of his signature leather-studded jumpsuits. And he's been seen backstage in the theater where he performed for so many years on the freight elevator that he normally took to reach his rooms. I'm told that Wayne Newton, when he performed one of Elvis's songs on the stage at the International, looked up in the box where Elvis normally sat when he watched performances, and there was Elvis. Well... The Luxor Hotel on the southern end of the Las Vegas Strip opposite the McCarran International Airport is an interesting place. It's flanked by the Mandalay Bay to the south and by the Excalibur to the north. All are connected by all three properties were built by Circus Circus, which later became Mandalay Resort Group. 
When it opened on October 15, 1993, the, the Pyramid was the tallest building on the Strip. It took two years to build and a total of 968 workers. To build it cost $375 million. A theater and two additional hotel towers totaled uh, 2,000 rooms were added in 1998 for $675 million. In June of 2004, the Mandalay Resort Group was purchased by MGM Resorts International. When the resort opened, it featured a river that circled the casino with a ferry that would carry guests to different parts of the pyramid. After guests complained the ferry service took too long, it was turned into the Nile River Tour. River ride that passed by many pieces of ancient artwork. Most of the ancient Egyptian theme and the river ride were taken away as part of a campaign to tailor the property toward more upscale taste in 1995. And the resort's been home to some popular entertainment attractions in the Las Vegas area. The main level featured the nightclub Ra. It's closed indefinitely July 22, 2006. Well, there have been a number of stories told about strange happening inside this unique hotel. Too many people talk about strange and unusual happenings for there not to be something unusual at work. May 7, 2007, a vehicle exploded in a Luxor Hotel parking garage, killing an employee. Local authorities believe the, the victim was actually the intended target. Hotel wasn't evacuated and the parking structure was undamaged. Ongoing investigations show the explosion was probably caused by a homemade bomb. While the case hadn't really been solved, the spirit of the victim has been seen to return to the parking garage, continually making his crown rounds as he did in the life. And the next story is going to deal with one of the first mega attractions on the Strip, the Nile River Tour. Well, you know, the, the Mirage was built by developer Steve Wynn, designed by Joel Bergman. It was the most expensive hotel casino in history with a construction cost of $630 million. Hotels' distinctive gold windows get their color from actual gold dust used in the tinting process. Reported to Resort would have to bring in a million dollars a day to pay off its a seven-year construction loan. But in fact, the Mirage did so well, the loan was paid off in just 18 months. Its construction is also considered very noteworthy, and it went and set a new standard for Vegas resorts. That's why they're considered to be the father of today's Las Vegas. The site of the Mirage was the original site of the Castaways Hotel and Casino. Before the Castaways, the Red Rooster nightclub set on the property. Red Rooster burned in 1931, was rebuilt, and the San Sushi Auto Court was built next door. 1957, a hotel was added to the property, and in 67, the property became the Castaways, which was bought by Howard Hughes in 1970. 1990 to 2003, the Mirage was the scene for the Siegfried and Roy show. Two headliners combined magic and the use of wild animals. When this popular attraction closed in 2003, after Roy Horn was injured by one of the white tigers used in the show, it did affect the mirage for a while. Its front attraction, the volcano, erupts regularly at night. 1993, the mirage hosted an extended run of the Cirque du Soleil uh, show, Nouvelle Experience, in a tent in the mirage parking lot. During this time, Steve Wynn decided to invite Cirque to create the mystery for the soon-to-be-built Treasure Island Resort next door. Well, 2004, 
Danny Gans took over the main marquee, becoming the resort's main uh, entertainment attraction. December 2006, the Beatles themed Revolution Ultra Lounge opened. The first Circuit du Soleil was involved in the development of a nightlife venue operated by the night group Las Vegas. 2009, a Mirage was featured on the Amazing Race 15, where one team member had to bungee the other into the air to grab a bouquet of flowers presented in the Love Theater. But behind the glitz and the glamour, there were spirits moving about, even in this extremely expensive hotel and casino. Surprisingly, the story seemed to revolve around the bathroom of what was the Danny Gans Theater. Automatic sensors on the faucets turn on and off by themselves at almost any time. Activity so well known that one cleaning lady refused to enter the restroom area to clean it. and Whenever she has cause to get near the room, she holds her rosary beads in her hand as a shield against whatever it is. Well, we've talked about a lot of haunted locations tonight. And let me tell you, just talking about them doesn't do justice to them. I've been in the international. I've had staff members tell me about events that absolutely uh, cause their hair to curl. Elvis has been seen so many times, it's not even funny. Well, on that note, we've come to the end of tonight's show. We'll be back tomorrow, and once again, we'll be listening to the Ken Hudnall Show. Until then, have a truly great evening.